This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. On the 26th of November, the headline news was that over 100 people were arrested for blocking the sea lanes in the port of Newcastle, Australia. This is Waramai and Awabakal traditional land and sea country. At 3pm, there was a great storm and I took shelter overlooking the ocean. Through the thunder and lightning, I could see the empty coal ships waiting for the people's blockade to be over at 4 p.m. They were all along the horizon. And at 4 p.m., the canoes and kayaks were still out on the harbour. The police pounced, and a day that started at dawn with a meditation about life on earth and a reflection on what was at stake ended with a 97-year-old Uniting Church minister, Reverend Alan Stewart, and 108 other people arrested. This has been a long time coming, and it has a long way to go. Listeners, you might remember we broadcast from the big Rising Tide meeting in Redfern Town Hall. That was a few months back, and they'd been on a tour of Australia speaking to communities, and they're going to do it again soon. Since then, thousands have signed on as climate defenders, and you can too. That means that you'd be ready to launch into disruptive action on the coal port of Newcastle as soon as there's a critical mass of supporters. They see Newcastle as our flagship national struggle. They say until Prime Minister Albanese says no to new coal projects and agrees to a tax on fossil fuel exports, 77, 75% of their profits they want, until then, they will disrupt the fossil fuel industry. It is disrupting our stable climate. So will you join them? You just need to go to Rising Tide on the internet to sign the pledge. This could be also an opportunity for coal companies to support the communities who have helped them make massive profits. 
You will hear tonight from a coal miner, two doctors, four politicians, and a youth activist from India. Let's start with her. Manjot Kaur was dressed in a swirly satiny dress of royal blue with a red top on the stage. They had a stage on the beach. She was an animated figure as she told us her story. When I was on Gomorrah country, I was surrounded by local farmers who had had their land stolen and their water threatened by coal mining companies like Whitehaven. I was listening to Gomorrah custodians who had had their land taken away for coal mining um, by Whitehaven Coal. And I was also standing there with my allies and friends from Sapna South Asian Climate Solidarity and from the Pacific Climate Warriors. And we went there to listen, to see the impacts of the coal mining on that local community and also to share our culture and our stories um, of hope for the future and what that looks like, not only for communities in Narrabri on Gomorrah country, but for communities in South Asia and communities in the Pacific. So let's start right there. Let's start in Narrabri, where the coal that comes to this port is being dug up, where it's being dug up on land that belongs to Gomorrah people, where it's being dug up using water that is stolen from farmers who desperately need it, where it's being dug up in communities that are being overtaken by coal mining propaganda. That's where the fight starts, right? That's where the impacts of coal mining starts and that's where the resistance starts. That's where locals, farmers and First Nations people are there disrupting coal mining in their community in different ways from how we're disrupting it here today. They're having conversations, they're waging legal battles, they're, they're in the nitty gritty. It's a different type of resistance to what we're doing, but it's equally as important and that's where the fight starts. Then that coal hops on a little train. Often those trains don't even have a lid on them, meaning that coal dust is blown into communities. It is breathed in by people causing health impacts. Then it finally reaches this port where it's processed and put on a ship. And that's where we are standing now. We're standing in the middle of that story of coal and we're standing at a place where we can stop the further impacts. But when it leaves this port, that coal goes on to multiple other countries in our region, countries across Asia, countries in South Asia like India. And what happens there is that that coal is burnt at coal power stations. These coal power stations are often also built on land that belongs to indigenous people or to local farmers. That coal is burnt on power stations that are taking away someone's farmland and someone's community. That coal is burnt stealing water from another country. So we see the same pattern playing out again. And then we all know what happens after that coal is burnt and the carbon emissions enter our atmosphere. We see the impact of that coal through the heat waves and mass weather events that are sweeping across the world and are particularly impacting places that um, across the global south and communities that are most vulnerable. So when we stand here at this coal port, we are not just standing against coal ships, we are standing for communities in New South Wales where the coal is being taken from and we are standing for communities across the world where the coal is being burnt and they're feeling the brunt of it.
we're on the front of this um, action and of this fight. We're on the front of the beach, we're on the front of the news, um, we're a blue front of rising tide, right? And this is our disruption, this is your disruption, this is the way that you are all standing up, which is beautiful and inspiring and heartwarming. And when we leave um, tomorrow or the next day and we stop being at the front of the action, let's remember that all along that journey of coal, from where it's dug up to where it's burnt to where the impacts are felt, there are communities, First Nations people, people of colour, who are also standing up and they're on the fronts of the same fight, but they're fighting in different ways that are also equally as important. So when you leave, be proud of yourself for being on the front of this fight. And then think about how you can be at the back next time, at the next event, standing behind those different communities who are on the front lines of the fight in these small towns and across the world. We wanna make sure that we're at the front like this, but that we're also behind backing in every other community, every other voice that's fighting against the coal that comes to this port. Thank you. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. So we followed the coal from Narrabride to Newcastle and then on to India. Now here is a coal miner called Grant Howard. For the last 43 years, I've been a part of the coal industry in Wollongong, Newcastle, and uh, more recently the Bowen Basin in Queensland. But being a coal miner doesn't divorce me from caring for the environment. It doesn't mean I can be reckless with my opinions. It doesn't mean I can re be reckless about other people's future. One reason amongst others why I become a climate communicator was because of an obligation I have to my fellow workers in the coal industry. I want coal miners to be part of the transition conversation. I become increasingly frustrated with politicians who fail to articulate the cascading disaster by, caused by burning, unearthing and burning fossil fuel. Politicians who deliberately lied not to protect mine workers, but lied and used mine workers to protect their own jobs. Creating fear and community division or lied to protect corporations that are hell-bent on squeezing every last dollar they can from this current and unfolding disaster. Politicians and governments have been aware of the climate consequences for well over 40 years. I learned about greenhouse gases and climate effects of burning fossil fuel at school in 1980. When I was at work, I talked to engineers and they described to me the impacts of releasing CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. Um, that was, those conversations were in 1985. I relied on the government to monitor the impacts of burning fossil fuel and to date, the government has totally failed. They haven't failed a little bit, they have totally failed to protect our environment. I don't care who's in government, I'm not a political person, I only want a responsible government who's addressing the issue of climate change. And while there are important issues in our community, um, that need to be addressed or make right. There is only one issue 
that if we don't address it with urgency and commitment, every other issue becomes irrelevant. A relatively stable and predictable climate is fundamental to survival. Burning fossil fuel, destroying carbon sinks, you know, you can't give billions of dollars to environmental protection and at the same time continue to burn fossil fuel. It's not a zero-sum game. It's a game that is fatal to our supporting ecosystems and biodiversity. There is one issue that needs our combined focus and that is the implementation of a zero-carbon economy. Other countries around the world have started on that or are doing that, um, but Australia has done the opposite. They are encouraging the sale and use of coal, oil and gas and continue to do so. As a person in the resource industry, I'm still a coal miner, I want to say that there's enough coal, oil and gas projects on foot to facilitate a transition and Australia could play an amazing part of a transition by declaring an end to new fossil fuel projects. No new fossil fuel projects is an economic signal that tells the world that we are serious about a transition. We need to remember that corporations are not faceless entities. They have at their centre boards of directors who, who hide behind a corporate veil and exploit whatever they can for their own individual benefit. I live in a rural environment. I see the problems of climate change manifesting around me. Climate, weather, seasons that were to some de degree predictable are now increasingly unpredictable. As a coal miner, I was trained to monitor uh, mine gases, CO2 and methane were some of those gases, it was part of my job. I was acutely aware of the atmospheric concentrations of CO2. Uh, it was 300 parts per million at start of my employment. That was in 1981. So 40 years have gone by. And one day, I, I, coincidentally, I was learning about a show on the new, uh, listening to the news at home and they talked about something about the level of CO2 and I heard that the level was going to reach 420 parts per million. And that was the crystallising moment for me when I heard that figure. I can't remember what they said after that, but I do remember my anger. Now why didn't someone manage this? Why didn't someone let us know about this? Why did I let this slip through my fingers? And as I was angry with myself, I become angry with the government. Um, I found, I then looked further and found denial and ridicule was entrenched in social media and politicians were exploiting that issue. They played on people's fear of losing their jobs and, and, and took notice, I took notice of politicians and I realised they were lying, just outright lying. So for me, I grieved. Uh, that angst gripped me, the sense of loss developed, I grieved. Every day I was at home, I was immersed in rainforest and animals that were part of an ecotone, and I lamented and realised that all of those things would eventually be destroyed or lost in fire. And I sobbed. But attending and participating in these climate protests has resolved that grief. Uh, it's been difficult to call out coal. I've been a part of that industry for over 40 years. Um, I understand my obligation to other mine workers and I want coal miners to be part of these conversations. It deeply disturbs me that politicians are not emphatically honest with miners and the community. I am in awe of people who participate in direct action, uh, who have no other motive 
than to maintain a world that is habitable for people not yet born yet. You are selfless people and, I can, and you continue to inspire and motivate me and that's why I'm participating in this blockade today. Thanks. <laughs>
Um, so one of the big things that happens is that has been well demonstrated now that is when the weather gets hotter people's sleep is disturbed and and many people would understand if you have a few bad nights sleep you feel tired you know your mood goes off cranky yeah frustrated um, but you know from a musculoskeletal perspective um, people everything hurts more you know so you exercise less so you're less fit and um, you know if it's a period when the weather's hot again then you can't exercise as much uh, uh, and I see a lot of elderly patients and it only takes a week or two of not exercising and you lose muscle strength and you really don't ever get that back, you know. So it's um, these compounding issues that really affect people's health. Um, I don't know what your field is especially, but you do a bit of adv advocacy. Like, I don't know who you speak to, but tell us a bit about that right. and how, how you can cut through. I know everyone says, oh, doctors cut through more than just the average person because we, we need doctors. We are adore doctors because they they have uh, knowledge that we don't have yeah oh thanks um but yeah i mean we as doctors many of us are seeing how these climate issues are impacting on our health so you know as doctors we're trying to protect people's health and do the best uh, for the future and um, now the biggest health impact for us moving forward is going to be an unstable climate and that's where we're at now. You know, the climate has been stable for thousands of years and now we're reaching a time when it's unstable. So we're moving into this period of uncertainty. Um, so to try and stop that from happening, to mitigate against that, you know, we have to reduce the fossil fuels. So over the last three years, I've been chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia. So we've been advocating at a number of different levels. So within the healthcare system itself, so um, uh, healthcare is about 7% of Australia's emissions. So if we're going to do our own bit, then we have to reduce our own emissions. So uh, we're very happy that this year the federal government has created the National Health Sustainability and Climate Unit. So they're specifically looking at reducing emissions in health. Um, and the benefits there are that, um, you know, there'll be less things spent in medicine on uh, tests and medications that don't really help us, you know, that create emissions in their own right and probably don't help people's health and in fact can sometimes be harmful. For example? Um, so sometimes uh, operations or medications might be used that have marginal benefit but if somebody has a adverse reaction to that, you know, an allergy or, um, or some unexpected um, uh, surgical outcome, well that's a, that's a misadventure for them, you know, their health is worse because of that, you know. So trying to target those kind of things is better for people's health but also better for reducing uh, emissions from the healthcare sector. Mm. What else? Advocacy. I'm thinking of people in power, sure. you know, no, politicians, that's right. That's right. people in Newcastle who are permitting new coal mines, yeah. extensions of coal mines. We just talked to the political people and they said it's just, you know, there's many coal projects in the pipeline and the government's this schizophrenic power that says we're going to have all these, uh, you know, renewable energy things, but at the same time permitting the thing. It's crazy. How do you talk to them? Crazy people. But do they don't look no, crazy? They look very sensible. Well, you know, there's so much misinformation out there and our opponents who want to continue fossil fuel developments are well resourced and they have good connections within the political system um, and they get told misinformation regularly so we have to counter that by talking to the same people and telling them that we're here because we're doctors and we want to help people's health we're not here to make money or to develop something 
um, and these are the facts and um, and maybe you think that there's an economic benefit in some of these uh, projects but uh, when you look at the health impacts and the impacts on our environment and consequently our whole existence what may seem to be a short-term economic windfall is going to be a long-term loss and um, and so we have to advocate at the federal level and the state level and the council level um, and that's what we've been doing. Can you just tell us for the listeners just to give them a bit of heart like somewhere where you've cut through you know where this kind of advocacy is actually yep. people gone aha right you're quite right. Yeah so I think one of the great examples at the moment is in the Northern Territory where they've got the middle arm project that they're trying to do in Darwin um, and much of that project is trying to be developed so that they can export gas from the Bedaloo Basin and we know that gas is equally as bad as coal as far as climate um, impacts are concerned let alone the local environmental impacts of fracking in the Northern Territory um, and the and the discrimination against the indigenous people who live there I mean it's just outrageous that that could even be considered so um, a number of times the Labor government has in federally it's been asked to have an inquiry into that um, and twice it was rejected but a, a bunch of doctors in August uh, went down to Canberra and we had a whole week down there and spoke to I think it was 50 politicians and various parents in collaboration with others you know um, uh, parents for climate action etc and at the end of that week they changed their view and they're now going to have a, 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 a inquiry into the middle arm project so it's taken a lot of work to do that and now there's more work because then now we have to go and and say why it is such a big issue um, but it's that kind of process that you have to go through to try and make change you know it's hard hard work but it actually pays off you know um, another good example was the Rocky Hill coal mine which we had was uh, being developed on the outskirts of Gloucester and um, we had presented at public hearings and I think initially the the community thought it was going to be a, a windfall for them, lots of jobs, etc., etc. Uh, but then we, when we said there's going to be this open-cut coal mine a kilometre from your house, it's going to be noise, there's going to be light, there's going to be dust, you know, and people go, oh, right, this doesn't sound so good after all. <laughs> um, so, you know, then that whole process, the community got very active, and, and it wasn't just us, of course, because it was a group, and this is, you know, this collaborating with many other people is so important um, um, you know that eventually uh, got rejected by the government and then the company took the government to court so it was quite interesting the activists and the government were on the same team uh, trying to defend that decision and then they went to the land and environment court and then they passed the law for the first time in New South Wales uh, stating that um, the climate uh, impacts of burning fossil fuels needed to be taken into consideration for these uh, developments. At last. I Listeners, know. you will remember Gloucester. We talked to Julie Lyford right, and all yes, of them yeah, and yeah, they yeah. got rid of AGL gas in Gloucester yeah, and well, then they went on to Rocky Hill. Oh, so. I know, I know. And I went there not so long ago. I said, so, you know, it's been a few years now since Rocky Hill. How's, town, how's the city town going, you know? And they went, it's never been better, you know. There's more people, there's more cafes. So, you know, it was all a doom and gloom story for they didn't have the mind. But in fact, it looks like it's been better than ever for them. So, 
you know, that's a really great story, I think. I hope that's the story for Newcastle listeners because a lot of windows, things are boarded up and closed. It doesn't look too prosperous in the main street, but maybe it's booming. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, it kind of seems to be going along pretty well, actually, lately. Yeah. Will it go on well with no coal? If oh, they yeah, stop no, using no. this as a coal export, what else could they export in this beautiful, from this beautiful oh. big port? Ah, well, they're going to do the container terminal thing here now, so that's uh, developing uh, along. So the port's really looking to diversify away from coal, is my understanding. Yeah, but you know, they're, they keep talking up how much employment is driven by coal in the Hunter. It's it's smaller than people would think. You know, um, there's the university, there's a number of major health uh, facilities, um, businesses are moving here, you know, it, the, the population's changed quite a bit. And I've been here, what, 25 years now, you know, it's changed quite dramatically and I don't think we have to worry about Newcastle's survival anymore. <laughs> Thank you. So that was Dr John van der Carlen, who see he's upbeat. <laughs> yeah, right. We can do this, we can do this, you know, we have to do this. <laughs> I hit the jackpot when I stumbled upon four women politicians sitting on the beach in the Greens tent yarning. They were very happy to talk to you. And I only wish that other politicians, especially the ALP politicians, had been available like them to talk to the public, to defend the position they're taking in Parliament and not to be hiding in Canberra. It really makes a big impression on me to be able to just talk and hear the ideas that are in circulation. Apparently, the Labor Environment Action Network was there the day before, but I missed them and I didn't see anyone else that you could go and chat to. Janet Rice is here to talk about why saving forests is saving climate. Hello, Vivian. It's great to be here. Yes, here with uh, my colleagues, my green women colleagues, elected representatives. It's wonderful. Barb, Barb Pocock, Rebecca Vassarotti and Sue Higginson. So it's great. Yes, and we've just been yarning about climate and, and getting fired up about it. But <laughs> but forests, forests are store. I mean, as well as being the most amazing places and home to incredible biodiversity and home to precious wildlife, they store an immense amount of carbon. And... Basically, it's a really easy thing to be protecting that carbon and to be keeping our forests just soaking up that carbon if you don't log them. It's really, really simple. And so it's certainly been a really important thread of our forest campaigning in recent years. We launched our most recent forest policy earlier this year, which is protecting forests, protecting the climate, and basically suggesting that the federal government should be supporting the state governments to get out of logging and support them with funding for the transition, both for ecological restoration and any transition that's needed for workers, on the grounds that you end the logging and you bank the carbon. So none of this craziness of carbon offsets. Basically, you just bank the carbon and so help us meet our climate targets. How cl close are we to getting a real shift? I noticed there's a new Aboriginal person in charge of national parks. Is that a shift towards getting a different sort of management of the... Oh, look, I think, I mean, obviously in WA and in Victoria, we've got now got an end to native forest logging at the end of this year in both of those states. So things are shifting when you've got two state Labor governments that have recognised that native forest logging just can't continue. Certainly, I know the case in Victoria, and the main driver of that because they were just losing money in losing legal cases because it was impossible for them to be logging 
legally. Every time they logged, they were logging the habitat of threatened species, essentially. But And I think that's exactly the same in Tasmania and in New South Wales. But the value of the carbon is a real incentive for state governments to end logging, plus the fact they lose money out of it, plus the fact that you know it's actually not that many jobs at all, and we've got 90% of the timber industry, which is in plantations anyway, and that's you know we need to be getting better use of our, out of our plantations, expanding farm forestry. You know, the writing's on the wall, as it has been for a very long time, for um, ending native forest logging, and we just need to keep the pressure up. Well, pressure. A lot of these listeners to this program will be seasoned activists over many years on this sort of thing. How much do politicians really listen to it? Can you really tell us honestly? <laughs> Look, it's ongoing pressure over a long time. They do listen. For example, I mean the the current issue that federal MPs across the country have been getting so many e- emails about is Palestine, and I know that I've had you know in Victoria over twenty thousand emails in my inbox about Palestine. When you get that sort of level of pressure, they do listen and they do know. And it's, you know it's why I'm a green. You know, on the back of being concerned about forests and climate 30 years ago, it was very clear that Labor and Liberal weren't listening. The only thing they were going to listen to was when they started losing seats. And so when Labor and Liberal politicians are getting that level of pressure, they realise that actually it is probably reflecting the fact that they might be losing seats. And we're looking at, you know, going into the next election with another couple of seats in our sights, which means that we potentially will then end up with Labor having to govern as a minority government, govern in a, you know, together with us, like is the case in the ACT with, you know, Rebecca being a minister in the ACT um, Labor Green government. And, you know, so there is the potential of that pressure, that electoral pressure being the thing that's going to make them listen. So that was Senator Janet Rice from the Federal Parliament. I've got from the New South Wales State Parliament, Sue Higginson. (laughs) I stumbled on her name, I should know her. But we're in the heart of coal country here, Melbourne listeners, and Sue has been fighting it out in Parliament to get a better dispensation about the coal mines. How's that going? Uh, We have been working around the clock for weeks and weeks and weeks because the New South Wales Minns Labor Government tabled their climate change net zero emissions futures bill. And um, frankly, it was words on paper. There was no mechanism to actually provide any real means of driving climate action. So the bill was referred to a committee, which I had the benefit of chairing. We had some great evidence before that committee that kind of showed the bill for what it is. That's provided us in the parliament an enormous leverage point to go in and say, we need these laws to actually drive some climate action. We need these laws to actually effect emissions reduction. They were really, really hopeless targets. They weren't binding. We had the old yesterday's targets of 50% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. We didn't have any interim target of um, 70% by 2035, which is actually the current coalition's policy. So we were literally heading backwards under the Minns Labor government. But really importantly, we didn't have the mechanisms. We didn't have anything binding legally. We didn't have a ratchet mechanism to get more ambitious as we go. We didn't have any relationship between the net zero law and our planning laws, which is where we're approving coal mines. And let's remember, we've got 14 new coal projects in the pipeline. This means massive expansions across the Hunter, the Gunnada Basin, 
Um, and they're in the pipeline and nothing under the, the Labor government's new climate laws would speak to those new coal projects. So we put a suite of amendments on the table. It looks like we are going to have some success. Those laws will be debated this coming Tuesday. Um, and we will. We will get a provision that speaks to the planning laws. We will get a good ratchet mechanism. At the moment, we've got a binding um, provision that will bind the government to the net zero target. But that's 27 years away. So once again, we've got a Labor government that is actually putting something on paper, but it's not committing itself to achieving the thing. It's, it's a lack of courage, it's a lack of vision, and it's a lack of leadership. But because of the work that we have done over the last few weeks, I have worked with the crossbench, the independents in the lower house, we formed an alliance, and in no uncertain terms, people want climate action, and we have, once again, the Greens leading the charge have forced a Labor government to getting closer to what climate action looks like, to making them go further and faster. We're not quite there yet. I've still got three more days before Tuesday, but that's what we're working on. If I was the CEO of one of those big coal companies around here, say I'm Mr Whitehaven or something like that, would I be frightened, do you think, to see these thousands of people here on little kayaks and MPs sitting under tents on the beach and all sorts of people networking? Would I be frightened of that? Is that going to affect anything? Um, I think they're probably not frightened, but they really should be. That's the reality. They really should be. And if they're not frightened yet, um, I'm sure they will be very soon. Look, they know. They know. The reality is, before I was a Green MP, I was challenging many of those coal corpora corporations in the courts across New South Wales. We were challenging their coal mine proposals, and we have been for over 10 years. They knew and they know this is coming. They know they're on borrowed time. The only thing that is propping them up is their political... Is the, the mas they are the masters of their puppets in, in Parliament right now, but they're losing their grip. Their strings are getting shorter and the time is coming. And they know that. They absolutely in no uncertain terms know that. We know that the price of coal before the war in Ukraine absolutely tanked. And that's the true economy of coal right now. And we, will we are returning to that and we will return to it fast. We also know that they know you've got bodies like the Insurance Council out right now. And when you look at the cost of climate change, we know it is, we are even just the insured losses from the climate crisis since the 2019 fires to the floods last year, we are looking already at 16.8 .8 billion. And that's just in insured losses. So the profits that these guys are driving here is minuscule compared to the cost of climate inaction. And they know those economics. Those economics speak loud to them. They know right now they are living on absolute borrowed time and they know that it's their product coming out of this here, the world's largest coal port, and we are exporting the climate crisis to all those other countries that are burning this coal. It's happening right here. And that's why today is absolutely brilliant because this is the people's blockade of the world's largest coal port and it looks and sounds fantastic. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am 
or listen online at 3cr.org.au. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. You're listening to the Climate Action Show and today we're at Newcastle where Rising Tide and many other climate action groups have launched hundreds of small boats into the shipping lanes. Senator Barbara Pocock is here because it's really a fantastic little gathering of people here in amongst thousands of others. Well, um, hearing Sue talk, it reminds me about what this region and the experience in the Hunter Valley has to offer our country. Um, I'm a senator from South Australia, Green Senator, um, but I spent the 80s here in Newcastle working with the New South Wales government and working on employment and I was here for the transition out of steel and what we know so much about transition from the Newcastle experience from Wollongong from the car industry in South Australia start early make a plan know your workforce know what they're uh, interested in learning into the future have a, a, a bucket of money that can assist those who are not going to work again they are going to retire Um, That's the way countries like Spain and Germany have moved out of coal. So we need a plan now, we need an investment now, and we need to believe in this community and invest in it. And instead, what we've got is a Labor government that's putting $11 billion into subsidising coal. So we have to shift the levers of economic policy and push Labor to put money where it should go for the future of the planet. And I'm here as a a parent and a grandparent. I've got my two-year-old grandchild here with me. For me, this is about the future. I love Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. It has a future. Our country has a better future, but it doesn't involve big ships going in and out of here just carrying coal to burn our planet. It's a whole lot of other futures and that's what we're fighting for. And it's so great to sit here on the sand with these amazing women who are so powerful and smart and who bring to all of our parliaments so much life experience and so much commitment to standing up to big power, which is what all of us have to do every day and it's not easy. You talked about, you asked whether they are frightened of us. They should be frightened of us because we've actually got the right arguments on our side, the facts on our side, the economy on our side and the future on our side. Well, a few, quite a few years ago, we interviewed a German trade unionist who came out here on a tour, and he was exactly talking about that transition and how they got all the stakeholders in the room. And I was so impressed by him. He made it sound easy. I bet it wasn't. But a long process by which they really left nobody behind. A lot of people got redundancies but were re-trained uh, into other industries. And I've been hearing about this for a long time now. I wonder why. Where's the resistance? Where's the hold-up? There are a lot of civil society people working in that area too um is it corruption is it what it's not that complicated it's it's actually really powerful interests and really really greedy interests they are greedy to take our children's future from them and you know that it's it's clothed in all kinds of complexity in our parliaments and in our social in our community life but the reality is it's a small group of very powerful mostly men who know as Sue said the writing is on the wall for their industry and they're trying to make the biggest buck on the way out that's the truth of it it's raw and cruel and greedy but it's not that complicated I also interviewed people in France on the um, citizens' assembly idea and they had a big one during COVID and they got a lot of people involved and they had to stop because of COVID and so the elderly people couldn't actually do Zoom and so they had to stop and instruct everyone. I thought it was very touching because they they 
raised the power among a lot of civilian civil groups. But I wonder if we shouldn't be going down that model because we, so many people I talk about get so sick of the argy-bargy in Parliament and the corruption feeling and someone's pulling the strings elsewhere and COP28 now in, in a jolly oil state. You know, people tell me all the time, I'm sick of it, I'm over it all. And, and I wonder, do you think we should be promoting more of the Citizens' Assembly stakeholders getting together? We've, we're, in South Australia, we've had a, one of the world's biggest citizens' juries looking at uh, the proposition to take the world's uh, high-level nuclear waste. It was a very powerful uh, event, but for my money, what we need to do actually is clean up our parliaments and get self-interest, those big companies, uh, out of parliament. One of the biggest shocks for me is how anyone, so many corporate interests, knock on your door in Parliament, they don't, you know, they've got a pass to go wherever they want, they don't even make an appointment, they come and, you know, give you so-called advice, and we have to get their money out of Parliament as well. So there's a whole lot of things we could do that would improve our parliamentary life, as well as, of course, more democratic measures like citizens' juries. But they are a slow road. We have to do some quicker things, I think. The future, you know, is here, and we have to start moving faster. That was Senator Pocock. And now, I, I didn't catch your name, but... She's in the ACT and you're in the Cabinet. Yes, yeah, so yeah, so in the ACT we do have a shared government with um, with um, ACT Labor and I think it is a really good example of actually what we can do in terms of taking you know taking climate action. Um, we're really proud that we are a jurisdiction that is running on 100% renewable um, electricity and um, we've had we met that target in 2019 and we're the first jurisdiction outside Europe to meet that and I think that you know we really try to be a you know a real leader in terms of climate action and show what we can do. Currently, we are looking at how we move to transition out of fossil fuel gas, and so we have made that commitment to become a fully electric um, electric jurisdiction. So um, you know, that, that's the work that we are trying to do in terms of saying when governments do come together, and I think particularly when you know, we, have, um, we have shared government and people making a real commitment to climate action, what is possible? And our, you know, our community is a community that is coming with us. We have some of the Highest up, we having have the highest uptake of electric vehicles in the country, with one in four, one in every four vehicles in the ACT new vehicles being an EV. So it's really about when you put good policy, you put the targets in place, and you get a plan in place, your community will back you and um, really get involved. So it's a really exciting thing to be part of. And really, you know, as as you walk down the beach, there's a whole lot of people here from the ACT because this is, this is a community that really knows the importance of climate action, the importance of stepping up and actually working in partnership. You know, we really see our community advocates and activists, real partners in the work that we're doing in, in our little city. So there's a big difference in people power if the politicians are actually receptive to it. Absolutely, and I think that that's one of the really exciting things that we can do by using different models of government as well. I think this idea of shared government, when it isn't just locked up by the two major parties, that is really you know um, trade, you know trade, um, trading what you know what they can do for their you know for vested interests, but it's actually about bringing bringing the community into the decision making. It makes it a much more exciting thing.
We're on the beach in Newcastle and listeners, I'm surrounded by many signs, I could read them all to you, but one of them said ALP supports and I went over to it thinking, oh that's nice, the ALP's got a little stall here and it said ALP supports coal mines. So it was someone else's sign, but what do you think about that, about the major political party seem to be entrenched in locked-in positions. Yeah, look, I think it's really sad. I'm, a, I'm the ACT um, Environment Minister, and I'm the only Environment Minister that's here today, and I think that is really disappointing, that actually, you know, political decision-makers need to stand up and actually say that we are, you know, we are we are absolutely with the community uh, and the public around these issues, and so, you know, I, you know, I think it is really disappointing that we don't see at the ALP here, um, that we don't see decision makers that are actually sitting around the table making the decisions that will have an impact for decades to come. This is a fight for the future, but this is also having an impact now. Um, we need to act more urgently and we need to do this transition. If we don't do this transition now, it is going to be more expensive. It's actually vulnerable people that are going to be hardest hit and we are really, you know, trading away our, you know, our children and our grandchildren's future in not taking action. Thank you. It's also nice to be able to bump into people and talk <laughs> yeah, to them. It's so lovely. There are, I Honestly, I can't remember a time where I've been in the company of so many fantastic people all in a small space at the same time. It is incredible and it's beautiful too. It's just beautiful. We've and seen having, dolphins and... Having the time to actually connect with people. Yeah. We've been out there on the water, you know, we've been part of the human signs, we're listening to the riffraff marching band. But what I'm really enjoying about today is actually having the time to sit down and have a yarn yeah. with, with great people. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much, all thank of you. you. We have a right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. I'd reached a point of exhaustion by then, listeners, so someone gave me a chair out of the sun and then up popped Dr Peter Sainsbury in a wetsuit. Dr Peter Sainsbury here, who listeners, you'll remember him. He writes terrific articles nowadays in Pearls and Irritations. But Peter, I know your grandfather was in the coal industry and say your grandfather was with us and he was across all the issues. He'd been doing all the reading, as you have. He knew, it, he knew what was at stake. What do you think he would say to this kind of people power and just channel him a bit? <laughs> well, it's a very, um, actually, it's quite a good question, I have to say. Uh, my grandfather, you know, as you say, here we are sitting on the beach at Newcastle, blockading the channel through which the uh, coal ships come and go and stopping them coming and going for 30 hours. Um, so what would my grandfather, who died in 1966, um, say well i mean if he'd been keeping up with with the sort of science on on climate change i suspect he'd be very uh much on side from that point of view but of course in 1966 there weren't many people who were talking about that sort of thing um but i tell you what my grandfather would have 
thoroughly approved of, and that's the the sort of coming together, the organisation, the, the, the getting together of people, people power, and opposing those people who have the sort of power in society, the influence, the money, are in influential positions in government, in companies and so on, he would be completely on side with us getting together a thousand or two people here on the beach to let our thoughts be known. Because my gran, he uh, took part in strikes in Yorkshire in the 1920s and 30s and he was blacklisted and had to move from where he'd been brought up, a place called Hoyland Common, and had to move with his young family to Thurnscoe to be able to get work in another mine because he stood with the, the, the miners who were, who were basically arguing for fairer treatment, better health treatment and fairer wages. In fact, his wife, who I called Nanny, um, Nanny was one of the very, very first lab women labour councillors in uh, uh, the United Kingdom. She stood for council as a Labour candidate. She was a very strong Labour supporter and she was one of the very earliest female Labour councillors. And both of them believe strongly in the, treat, the fair, honest treatment of people, that people should be respected and that they should, their health should not be damaged. And that's the problem, one of the problems with climate change, that it is damaging our health. And I'm still not sure that that message has got through to everybody. It's not just about killing koalas and polar bears, and it's not just about chopping down the Amazon. They're all really important, and killing dugons and whales and all the rest of it as the oceans warm. It's actually killing human beings already. It's making them sick. Um, and it's not just the climate change, it's also the air pollution from burn, burning of coal and oil and gas. Um, in fact, I was reading a report just in the last week or two, a new report looking at new evidence where just the sort of the fine particles that are released when coal and, um, and oil and gas are burnt, just the fine particles, not all the other pollutants, that they're causing about nine million premature deaths a, a year. Now, my gran and my nanny would be absolutely horrified about that and they'd be organizing the miners and the labor supporters and the labor voters to do something about it. So in that regard, they'd be right behind us. Yeah, great. Now, Peter, I've interviewed you once before, quite a few years ago, about the actual impact of in this sort of area of coal mining. And we see the trucks every day, they're still coming along that train track, uncovered, dust. I used to know a teacher in one of the little towns along there, her school with the community garden in the back was just covered in coal dust, so I don't think you could really eat the asparagus they were growing. Mm. Um, well, tell us, just remind listeners about the actual effect on, local effect, of coal mining, well, apart from people dying in mine accidents, which still happen. That's right. Well, that's the other thing, of course, that the first casualties in coal mining, we're talking about coal mining here in the Hunter Valley, are the, the people who die in coal um, mine accidents. Um, there are accidents underground, and there are accidents involving equipment underground and, and on the surface. It's not just explosions and rock falls, it's also the equipment that, that causes deaths. 
Um, but you're right, the example you gave of, of, Hunter, uh, of coal being uh, put on trains and carried here to the port in Newcastle where it's then stockpiled before it goes onto the ships, it, it's just crazy that, that those trains, kilometres long, are stacked with coal without covers on top. What's particularly crazy about it is that if you're a truck driver on the road, you're not allowed to do that. You have to cover your loads, including coal loads. But for some reason, for some reason, because there's political reasons and, and donations to political parties and all the rest of it, that it's still not compulsory to cover coal wagons in New South Wales. And it's just ridiculous, as you said, the coal blows off into schools, into backyards, it dirties washing, but it also causes a lot of ill health. It's, um, it's what blows off the coal wagons is mostly particulate matter. Um, and some of it's very, very small, and other bits are just small, the thickness of, say, a, 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 a strand of hair, but some bits are even smaller. And these blow off, they get into the air, you can see it sometimes. And in actual fact, they also fall onto the line and then break up, and so it's even more, even you know, after the train's passed. But this gets into uh, people's lungs, school children's lungs, uh, people who live by the railway's lungs, uh, people who live a bit further away because of course it carries on the wind, it's very small, gets into people's lungs and we know it causes um, lung disease, asthma, uh, bronchitis, emphysema, lung cancer and we know it causes cardiovascular disease. It doesn't just get into the lungs, the very fine particles actually get into the bloodstream and then it causes uh, inflammation and, and that's a cause of heart disease. On top of that, it also can cause allergies, particularly skin allergies. In fact, I was talking to a miner in the Hunter a, a, it's a few years ago now, and he was a bit down on greenies. The first thing he said to me was, are you a greenie? And I said, well, I certainly support um, healthier uh, people and coal, coal, coal mines help, uh, don't help uh, people's health. And he went on, he'd had a few beers, he wasn't drunk, but he'd had a few beers. He, he talked about how he'd worked in the mines all these years and one thing and another. Um, and then when I had to go, because I was being picked up, he said, um, he said, yeah, but you know, my daughters are both grown up now. One was a teacher and one was something else. And he said they won't come home because when they come home, they break out in eczema and, and asthma and so on. And then as I was parting, his parting shot to me was, you know, I think I might vote Green at the next election. <laughs> so yeah, the point is, I'm not trying to point out that that miner was silly. What I'm trying to point out is he knows that it's bad for people's health. He was coming to the end of his career and he was grateful for the fact that it had provided him with solid employment and a decent wage for many years. But he was also very conscious that it wasn't good for the next generation. Thank you, Peter. So here we are on the beach, looking at all the flotilla of little boats. Let's hope it all accumulates to some sort of political shift. Any last words? Oh, just thank you. I'm, I was very delighted to see you here yesterday, to be honest. And it's great to see you going around interviewing people. So well done. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. I met two listeners while I was in Newcastle, and believe me, it was a great delight to know that they get our regular podcast even way out in country towns. 
we'd love your feedback. If you ever want to phone 3CR, the number is 0394198377. We'd love you to subscribe to the station, but also to subscribe to the podcast for the Climate Action Show 3CR. A big thanks to Rising Tide for the smoothly run, safe and uplifting blockade. As the ocean tides are rising, the tides of people prepared to take nonviolent direct action also need to rise. It was visible here with two or 3,000 people, but they want 10,000 people to come back next year. That depends on you. Thank you tonight to Manjat Kaur, Grant Howard, Dr. John van der Kallen, Senator Janet Rice, Senator Barbara Pocock, the Environment Minister for the ACT, Rebecca Vassarotti, the New South Wales Greens MP, Sue Higginson, and thanks to Dr. Peter Sainsbury. My name is Vivian Langford. Goodbye and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.